0: The Finding Holy Podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy Podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
1: point with God is not whether I have envy or not, that it is how I deal with the envy that he knows I have. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history
2: and a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Alexander White in the late 1800s in Scotland.
0: Joel, today's biography actually mirrors the sermon. Uh, the sermon covers the story of Eli. If you remember Eli uh, from First and Second Samuel, really 1 Samuel, he has, I, I always walk away with a pretty negative view of who Eli is. I, I think most of us do. Uh, nobody really wants to grow up to be like Eli. At least that's one of the, kind of the way I did it. But he's wrong, and he's in errors, and God, I mean, it, literally at the end of the story, takes away his family. It looks really bad, but... When I listened to this sermon, I finally actually kind of, like, relate to Eli, and I realized his errors were well-intentioned and were ones I could kind of see myself making. In fact, Eli may be one of the most human people in the Bible. He was trying to do good. He kept messing up over and over, and he kind of trusted God. Even when God was saying, like, I'm going to, you know, take away your family, he didn't fight God. He was like, it's fair, it's God, I understand. And Alexander White's story is actually very similar, where I think he had good intentions, but you can see how because he didn't stick to the path, uh, he ends up with some negative results.
2: Yeah, we've covered Alexander White on an earlier episode of Revive Thoughts. Uh, It was the episode titled The Magnificence of Prayer. So we'll be building a little bit on that conversation we had in that episode in that episode, Troy and I kind of took this analysis of Alexander Wyden. We kind of made it seem like he was a little bit of a of a pushover. When the liberal forces kind of overtake his church, we, we look at how he acted and we kind of uh, were a little bit disappointed that he didn't take a kind of a stronger stance in his life. But uh, and while that's, you know, not wrong, while I think that's still a pretty sound analysis, Uh, Today, we're going to give him a little bit more credit, and we're not going to take away from the mistakes he made, but we might help explain them a little bit here. But quick before we jump into that, let me just give you a quick recap. Let me paint the setting, the scene where in 1836 in Scotland, right, his mother was an unmarried woman, and she was also a devout Christian who was ashamed of her sin, and she decided that she wasn't going to marry the father uh, purely just to to cover up the, the pregnancy. And so she decided to raise this child by her own. So the father wasn't in the picture for most of his life. He grew up poor. He was a shoe cobbler, but he loved to read. And when he did eventually reconnect with his father at, when he got older, his father helped send him to
0: school where he was an excellent student. And this love of education, I think, played a big part in his Undoing, but also in his success, um, it kind of makes sense. His life was destined for, I mean, shoe cleaning and fixing up shoes, and he was reading books for fun, and then he gets this education, and suddenly he's um, got all these new ideas. He's on his way to becoming a minister. His life completely changes with school, and I, I think if I can speak out of turn, I don't know him, but I think to a degree he attributed his success to his education and not realizing that that was just the channel God was using to bring him to his uh, goal of becoming a minister. But you know, I can't read his heart. That's just me, what I think might have maybe happened to him. Uh, Some people that worked with him said he had more ideas than he knew what to do with. He was always taking notes, writing things down, and looking and searching hard to explain how he could get his thoughts out of his head. At school, he met people that started to point him down this not really great road. There were lots of friends of his that were, you know, they were very intelligent, but they weren't the most solid theologians. Um, There's this famous story where he couldn't believe that one of his friends graduated, but couldn't find a church to take him in as a preacher. And for six years, he was like, this guy is a genius. How does nobody want this guy? But the guy denied the authority and inerrancy of the scripture and believed that, you know, the Bible is pretty much just written by man as a good guess for what God was. And it seemed like the churches kind of understood that's not what you wanted a preacher. But Alexander White, you know, choosing in a, maybe the friendship over that didn't, didn't quite see that with clear eyes.
2: Now, we mentioned before, Alexander White didn't seem to show... These tendencies in his own life, he, he, we see very clearly that he believed man was sinful, that man needed God, and that God's word was inerrant. But his friends, those that he spent his time with, didn't seem to, to share that trust the way that White did. And we can theorize, and we can speculate, and we don't really know looking back in the past, was it because he was wanting to minister to them, or did he just love the intellectual pursuits that he found in the conversations with him? It's hard to say why White was so tolerant of hanging around uh, people that had less than biblically sound ways of thinking. When you look at what he's doing in his personal relationship with God, he seems to take it very, very seriously. He'd do over a thousand home visits every year. I mean, that's...
0: A lot. That's multiple visits per day. Yeah, he would study scripture and books all morning. He himself said he'd read a passage. He'd read Spurgeon sermons on that passage, who, you know, Spurgeon was preaching at the time, getting published in newspapers. Uh, he would read books, then he'd read scripture some more, and then you kind of get going on what the sermon would look like. His friends and assistant ministers said that about half of what made Alexander White so great and brilliant was that he just outworked. He had more industry. He worked harder than the other preachers in his time. And you gotta remember, this is the 1800s. This is when you had some of the best preachers that ever lived, Charles Spurgeon, Alexander McLaren, D.L. Moody, Theodore Kyler. If you're outworking all these guys, you are putting in a lot of hours. Uh, It was also said that the only sin that White couldn't tolerate was laziness. He put up with sinners of all types, and you could see him, you know, as a problem of his. He was friends with too many different types of people. Um, He could understand all of them except for laziness. He just couldn't understand, fathom, or tolerate a lazy pastor. In his mind, um, the way he kind of viewed it was just that these guys are holding the keys to the gates of the kingdom of God, but they're not putting the energy in to turn the key and let people in, and he thought that was just one of the greatest sins that you could be holding on to that and not not let others know that that was just so uh, harmful to the church.
2: When he was studying with the free church, kind of this, this church-school combination there, he was assisting them and learning under them, and he gained a lot of favor in their eyes. And one day, the principal of the school uh, became ill, and he called White to his deathbed. And he told White, I had wanted to stay with you a bit longer so that I could help you, but it is not to be. And he left the pulpit, he left his church to... White for White to lead, and he left the school to another minister, uh, and he said goodbye and died. So White had to study hard. He had to work extra hard to earn his place uh, in this church, this congregation that he was willed he inherited from the principal of the school. Was filled with doctors and professors and scientists and lawyers, people that would call him out if he if he was faking it. So he had to put in the time and research and know what he was talking about, because he knew that the congregation wouldn't
0: wouldn't settle for anything less. I kind of believe it was this constant search for new ideas and things, too, that would also lead him down the road of kind of taking ideas he shouldn't have. If you notice, I've had several explanations throughout this episode of what maybe caused this problem. It's because it's a mystery and also because it is important. And so I, I really spent a lot of time trying to figure this out about him. Even since our last episode, I've been wondering, like, what was it that got to him? Because I think it's something that can happen to anybody. Now, he was especially fond of a man, uh, and this is the problems and the things that he kind of did wrong here. He was really fond of a man named John Newman. John Newman very famously kind of converted out of the Church of Scotland and became a Roman Catholic. Um, Alexander White was a big fan of ecumenicalism too. He This is during that, m- that movement in history, if you know about it, where uh, there's a bunch of ecumenical movements. The idea is that the church can kind of all unite and become one church again. And uh, this idea really came to alexander white the problem is that these churches would pretty much all unite on everything but the gospel the one thing that was most important was the thing they would be that's too offensive we can't bring together on that but we'll unite on the idea of doing good works or we'll unite on the idea of doing this and doing that but we won't we won't bring jesus into it that's too controversial and so these this, his, he also had this idea that, you know, the church should learn more from the Greek Orthodox and more from the Roman Catholic churches and that these guys have a lot to tell us today and we need to go backwards. And he wasn't as interested in going towards the, the stronger Protestant theologians and ministers that you would think he should be kind of leaning on. So this created a problem where he was very outwardly supportive of just kind of higher critical thinking, liberalism, ecumenicalism, all these things that were bad for the church outside of his time As a pastor, but when he's again behind the pulpit, he is preaching the Bible and God.
2: His sermons were, they're fiery and they're convicting. One of the church members said, no one could bring me as low as Dr. White and no one could bring me back to God like Dr. White. There's this account of one day he's he's coming into the church service and he storms up to the pulpit and he says, "I have it! I have found the most sinful man in all of Edinburgh," and it's this this dramatic kind of show that he does where he he's he's leading the congregation off saying that he's he's tracked him down to this congregation, the, this most sinful man in the whole city is in the church building right now. And then in a, in a dramatic turn of events, he points the finger at himself and he says, ah, I am the most sinful man here. And that might sound a bit cheesy. I think it sounds a little bit cheesy to us now, but, but I mean, 150 years ago, like, he was probably the first person that, that pulled a stunt like that. And it was really effective. The, the, the crowd in the audience uh, was really taken by that sermon, and it really made an impact on him.
0: Yeah, and his preaching and application of the word, people in his day actually called him a Puritan risen from the dead, or some people would say he was the last real Puritan left, the guy who would just be very passionate and serious about God's word and pointing people to the sinfulness of their own actions. So... If you're listening to this episode, you're probably like, so what's going on here? How can a man on the one hand be so liberal and soft and ecumenical, but also he's the last of the living Puritans and he's a great convictor of so many souls. How can this one guy be doing these two things at the same time? I think the answer lies actually in the way he talks about Eli in this sermon. If you listen, he'll say that Eli tried to do too much, and that's what caused him to fail. He failed across several different areas, but as you'll find in the sermon, there was a trust and a true belief in who the God of Israel was inside of Eli. I think the same is true for our guy Alexander White, a man who worked hard and learned so much and tried to just be so many things that he got kind of carried away, especially with academia. But the thing that God had called him to do, which was preach, That he did well and excellent to the end.
1: Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle and of the congregation. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Know, my sons, it is no good report that I hear you. You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sins against another, the judge will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will entreat for him? But they did not listen to the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 22 through. 25. Do you know a man that is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than of him. Eli thought she was drunk, and Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 14. Yes, but we have hope of Eli in spite of his hasty words, for Eli never forgave himself for his hasty words to Hannah. Eli had many bitter memories as he sat by the wayside watching for the Ark of God. And one of the bitterest of those memories was the lasting memory of his insulting language to Hannah. No sooner had that hasty word gone out of Eli's mouth than he would have given all the world to have had that hasty word back again. Go in peace, Eli said, and let the God of Israel grant you your petition which you have asked of him. In all his days, in his sore remorse for what he had said to Samuel's mother before Samuel was born, Eli tried to make up for that insult to Samuel, her son. Eli's extraordinary care over young Samuel, his extraordinary tenderness toward the child, and as Samuel grew up, the oldest priest's secret fear over Samuel and his growing reverence for him. He had done it all in an attempt to undo the insult and the injury he had done to Samuel's mother. Samuel was predestined soon to succeed all Eli's forfeited offices. All Eli's high positions were soon to descend to Samuel. And Eli saw all that was preparing to come about soon. But all that did not alter or abate by one iota Eli's notable goodness to Samuel. Eli could not have treated Hophni or Phineas better than he had treated Samuel, his immediate successor. Frederick Robertson, in his apology for Eli, makes a great deal of the total absence of envy in Eli. My tongue would be cleaving to the roof of my mouth with envy. I would be as blind with envy as Eli was blind with old age. The hair may have fallen off my head till I am bald with envy, and yet no man about me, Would so much as guess it. What Eli is to be praised for is not that he felt no envy of Samuel, but rather than feeling envy every day, as he could not fail to see it, he kept his envy down and did not let it come out in his treatment of Samuel. Of course, Eli had envy of Samuel. All men have envy in their hearts who are placed by God in Eli's circumstances. And it is misleading and mischievous for any preacher to say anything else. God alone could say whether Eli had envy or not. And he never says that about Eli or any other man. He says about Eli and all men the very opposite. The point with God is not whether I have envy or not, but it is how I deal with the envy that he knows I have. All that my fellow men can see in me is not the envy of my heart, but that of my life they can see and hear whether or not I backbite and belittle and detract and depreciate, or whether I consent and take part in pleasure with them who do. And while that is much to see and to judge, it is far from being all. If John the Baptist had no envy and no jealousy of his fast-rising cousin, then he has less praise for his noble reply to his envious and jealous disciples. But if the forerunner had to fast from his locusts to help him to subdue his pride, and if it was only after many unwitnessed days and nights of sweat and prayer and blood that he was enabled to hand over John and Andrew to Jesus, whom he had baptized but yesterday beyond the Jordan, well then John the Baptist is of some use to you and me. But if John had no such envy and no such jealousy himself as his disciples had on his account, then he was not a man of like passions as we are. If John did not sometimes find himself hating Jesus in his heart till in his agony he threw himself over the bleeding rocks of the wilderness, then all I can say is that Elizabeth's sanctified son was not made of the same rotten stuff as you and me. For not only had Eli, with all his envy, a very real and very deep love for little Samuel, but along with that, And kept alive by that, he had a real and living and a deep faith in God and in God's voices and visions and answers to men. There was Eli's fine benediction spoken over Hannah the next moment after he had mistaken her for a daughter of Bilal and his open-hearted adoption of little Samuel to be his assistant and successor in the temple service. And his rich benediction pronounced on Samuel's mother because she had lent little Samuel to the Lord. Then there was his midnight lesson to his little elect companion. In his solemn demand, the next morning to be told what the Lord had said to the prophetic child during the night, and his instant acceptance of the terrible message that Samuel was compelled to deliver. It all shows us that Eli, with all his shipwreck of life and opportunity and privilege, understood the root of the matter all the time. There had been no open visions for a long time in Israel, but Eli's mind had been open all that time. You will see men with great faults and even with completely lost and wasted lives who yet through it all and to the end have a certain openness of mind to divine truth and a certain confidence and spontaneous sympathy with divine truth when it comes. And through those it speaks. And poor old Eli was one of those open-minded and truth-loving men. If his own sins and his son's sins had shut silent the divine vision, then Eli was all the more prepared to believe that the divine vision would hereafter speak to better man than he had been. And when the divine vision did begin to break its long silence and to speak again, For Eli to accept that vision, even when it came in the shape of a sentence of capital punishment on himself and on his house, well, if ever faith had her perfect work in an open mind, it was surely in castaway Eli's open mind. There is a lesson here, and what a noble example to all old castaway among us. The Spirit and the providence of God in His church have stood still in our day. There has been nothing to call an open vision. We have sinned away the open vision. We have quenched the speaking spirit. Let us expect then for our successors what we have sinned away from ourselves. Let us believe and be sure that the coming generation will see visions and hear God's voice that we have not been counted worthy to see or to hear because of our great unfaithfulness and unfruitfulness and because of our great blindness and disobedience. And then... Look at old Eli's splendid resignation and Gethsemane-like submission. It is the Lord. Let him do what good to him. I will never believe that Eli is lost. Broken neck and dead sons and daughters lying all around him, the ark taken, the temple in ruins, and the glory departed. And all this is true, but Eli is not lost. No man is wholly lost who lies lost before God like that. Though he sit, slay me, said Job, but he did not slay Job as he slew Eli. Job's patience and meekness and submission and resignation were tried terribly, but they were not tried down to the death as Eli was. And he who so rewarded Job and who supported and rewarded his own son, No, I will not believe it till I see it that Eli is among the reprobate. It is the Lord. If anything will cover a multitude of sins, and if anything will draw down mercy of God, surely that cry of Eli's will do it. Way back at the beginning of his life, Eli had taken far too much in hand. Eli was not a great man like Moses or Aaron, but he took both the office of Moses and the office of Aaron upon his single self. Eli was both the chief judge and the high priest for the whole house of Israel. The blessed, the most laborious, the most devoted, the most tireless and sleepless of men could not have done what Eli undertook to do. They called Origen brazen boughs. He was such a sleepless student, but Eli would have needed both bowels of brass and a head and a heart of gold to have done half of what he set out to do. In taking up what was beyond mortal power to perform, the certain result was that he did nothing well, but did everything poorly. Both his high priesthood at the altar and his chief judgeship at the gate and his sole fatherhood in his own house. Both God's house and his own house and the whole house of Israel went to wreck and ruin under the overburdened Eli. It is startling and terrible to think that the unparalleled catastrophe of Eli's awful end had its first and far back roots in what is as much a virtue surely as a vice, his determination to do two men's work with his own hands. But whatever Eli's motives were for loading himself with all these offices and emoluments, the terrible catastrophe of his own end and his son's end and the end of Shiloh and all its earliest roots in Eli's vaulting ambition. And the consequent incapacity and neglect, the mischief, was widespread. But it was at the home that the widespread mischief rose to a height that went beyond human remedy and beyond divine forgiveness. And may something of that same kind not be the explanation of some of those sad cases where the houses of able and good and devoted ministers come to such ruin. With so many public demands and claims, and with such incessant calls and encroachments at all hours of the day and night, there is neither time nor strength to do any part of a minister's work as it should be done. And one worried week follows another worried week till his children grow up and grow out of his knowledge. A bishop must be vigilant, yes, but a bishop in our day would need to have a hundred eyes and a hundred hands and a hundred feet. He must rule well the house of God. Yes, but the apostle tells Timothy that they must know how to rule his own house first. It is a fine picture, one that rules his own house, having his children in subjection with all sincerity. It would almost seem that Paul had had the ruins of Eli's house before his mind when he wrote that fine instruction. All other men have grave sweet Sabbath day to spend with their children, ruling and teaching them all but the ministers and policemen and some others. But ministers have neither Saturday nor Sabbath nor Monday. And I never hear them complaining of that unless it is when they think of their children. We call Eli old and blind and idle and inefficient and ignorant and neglectful of his own children of God's people. And so he was. But all that was not because he did nothing, but because he did too much to do anything well, till at last, broken in life and broken in heart, with his nation and his church and his household lying all in ruins around him, we see Eli sitting by the wayside waiting for death, a terrible end to such a bold and ambitious beginning. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Baal. They didn't know the Lord. Impossible, you would protest, if it were not for the Bible. But just because it's in the Bible, we are compelled to ask ourselves how it could possibly come about that the sons of such a sacred man as Eli Could ever become sons of Baal? What, not know the Lord? And they were born and brought up within the very precincts of the Lord's house. Did they not hear the praises of God in His sanctuary? Were not the first sights they saw was their father in His robes beside the altar, with all the tables and the bread and the sacrifices and the incense around Him? And yet, there it is in black and white. There it is in blood and tears. The sons of Eli were sons of Baal. They didn't know the Lord. Let me think. Let me consider well how conceivably it would come about that Hophni and Phinehas could be born and brought up at Shiloh and not know the Lord. Well, for one thing, their father was never at home. What with judging all Israel and what with sacrificing and interceding for all Israel, Eli never saw his children till they were in their beds. What does this mean? All the other children asked their fathers as they come up to the temple. And all the way up and all the way down again, those fathers took their inquiring children by the hand and told them all about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the Exodus and all the wilderness, the promised land conquest and the yearly Passover. Hophni and Phinehas were the only children in all Israel who saw the temple every day and paid no attention to it. And every father and mother knows this, how the years run away and how their children grow up till all of a sudden they are as tall as themselves. And how much faster than our tallest children did Eli's children grow up. All things indeed were coming together against Eli. The very early ripeness of his sons was against Eli. He thought he would one day have time, but it was his lifelong regret that he had never had the time. And there was always one thing and then another. And with their father's preoccupation and their own evil hearts, the two young men were already sons of Baal when they should have been little children. Why do you do such things? For I hear of all your evil dealings by all these people. No, my sons, this is not no good report that I hear about you. Like our own proverb, Eli is seen trying to shut the stable door with many tears and sobs years and years after the horses have broken out. I've spoken of Job. Well, I always think that Job was the very best father in all the Old Testament, while Eli was surely the very worst. Let this passage from Job be repeated to himself by every father every day from the first day he is a father. This golden passage by Job was one that pleased God and eschewed evil. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were over, that Job sent and sanctified them. And he rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, And so Job did continuously. Our old ministers, when they had a father at the pulpit, used to make him swear that he would pray both with and for his children. Now it was right here that Eli went wrong. And it is just here that so many of ourselves go wrong and we lose our children. We scold and scowl at them and we beat and bruise and lock them up when we should pray both with them and for them. If, when they tell a lie, or steal, or speak bad language, or strike another, or defiantly disobey us, we would neither lift a hand nor a tongue at them, but would take them to our place of prayer, and there pray both with and for them, as sure as I stand here and you sit there, there would be fewer sons and daughters of Baal in our houses. Let us do it. Let us, unlike Eli tonight, go home and do this. And if our children are grown up and gone away, let us all the more go after them, like Job, with that sacrifice and that persistence, which have the promise and the power to apprehend them and to bring them back. So Job did continually. You will all have it well in your mind how this all ended how the ark of God was taken, and how the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain, and how Eli, when he heard the evil tidings, fell from the seat off backwards and his neck broke and he died, and how his daughter-in-law, her pains came upon her, but she didn't answer it, and how she named her son Ichabod and so died. Ichabod, a name that meant the glory of God had departed from Israel.
0: I always thought there was this foil. If you know anything about kind of literature, foils like this opposite character, uh, this 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 you know reverse person. I always thought the foil in First and Second Samuel was Saul and David. One is faithful, one isn't. One's is the first king, but one's the good king. But actually, after the sermon, I think maybe Eli is actually the foil for Saul. Both were punished by God. Both were wrong and had their positions taken from them. Both of them tried to do too much. Saul tried to be the priest and sacrifice. Eli tried to be the judge and the leader of Israel at the same time when he wasn't called to do both of those things, uh, be the priest and the judge. And yet, the difference is in how they accepted it. When God punished Eli, Eli goes, you know what? God is the God of Israel. He will do what he's going to do. When Saul got punished, he fought back hard, and Saul burned up with jealousy at the idea that his children wouldn't be on the throne. Eli not only didn't have jealousy for Samuel, he raised Samuel and tried to set him on the right path that he couldn't set his own kids on. And in the family line, you'll actually see both Eli's family, as his grand nephew or son is actually mentioned as a priest later on, and Saul's family tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, are both spared and redeemed and used by God again.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Patrick Antonucci. If you liked today's episode, check out our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript
0: for today's episode and all of our episodes. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we really want to encourage you to uh, consider joining us on Patreon for $3 a month. Uh, You can help us... With support the show, there's some equipment that Joel and I actually need to get that would really help us do some recording, especially as we bring you interviews from experts and we're able to uh, do kind of things like that that we want to be able to do for the show. We need a little bit more equipment to do that. And so if you could help join us in that endeavor, we could continue to get that stuff and make the show even better, hopefully something you can enjoy even more. Also, $3 a month, what does Patreon get you? It gets you a signed bookmark by Troy and Joel. That is a... A signed bookmarked by me and Joel, and that is a one-of-a-kind Revive Thoughts bookmark. It also gets you access to the future Revive Thoughts deep dives that we will have full episodes that we can listen to the whole thing. And you can go back and listen to the Salem Witch Trials episode, the full-length feature. It'll also get you an ad-free uh, episode, so you no longer have to listen to advertisements inside your show. And it gives you access to Behind the Mic, so you can get a chance to listen to a little bit about how Joel and I make this show, too. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.